Hello there. This is Peter Sellers speaking to you from MGM Studios, Culver City, right in the heart of Hollywood, which, as you know, is movie land. Uh, we're here, that is to say, uh, Hal and I, Hal Ashby, our director. Hal? Hello. <laughs> Hal has made many, many successful films, such as um, uh, Tomorrow's New Yesterday and... Um, <laughs> Back, backwards Before Dawn. Backwards Before Dawn was another huge success. That was Peter Sellers and director Hal Ashby goofing around on the set of Being There, just one of hundreds of delightful and fascinating moments to be found in Hal, a documentary about legendary film director Hal Ashby. Hello and welcome to episode 115 of the Occasional Film Podcast, the occasional companion podcast to the Fast Cheap Movie Thoughts blog. I'm the blog's editor, John Gaspard. In today's episode, I chat with Amy Scott, the director of the terrific documentary, Hal, which is a deep dive into the life and work of one of my all-time favorite directors, the man who made Harold and Maude, Shampoo, Coming Home, and Being There, the one and only Hal Ashby. I kicked off our chat by thanking Amy for making this movie. It's a loving tribute to a complex and emotional artist, and she did a fabulous job pulling it all together. As an editor, she would have made Hal Ashby proud. First, I want to say thank you for making the movie. Oh my gosh. And thank you for making such a great movie, because he totally deserved it. Oh, thank you. And I was always wondered why of all the directors of the 70s and 80s, he was never really heralded the way he should have been. Uh, I think part of it has to do with that he had no discernible style, so you couldn't really peg him for something. But before we dive into that, tell me a little bit about your background before you made Hal. Uh, well, I am from Oklahoma. <laughs> um, I moved to Chicago uh, out of college, and in, in college we studied a lot of I had a great film professor at OU at the University of Oklahoma, this guy, Misha Nadelkovich. I don't think he's there anymore, but he really hipped us to the coolest documentaries. And I had no idea that you could, that you could be a documentary filmmaker, like, you know, like great, like, like from Chris Marker to like mm-hmm. um, the seven up 21 up that series to like hands on a hard body. Mm-hmm. Um, so just really great, great, well-rounded um uh, film and media program. Anyway, um, I moved to Chicago and started. I, I was go- I was I wanted to be a um, a director and a DP, but I fell down. Um, I'd gotten a job at the University of Chicago. I think I faked my way into it, and I was supposed to start on a Monday, and I fell on the ice and broke my arm on a Friday. And so I was like, I can't shoot. I can't film. I can't use my arm to film with the, hold the camera. I need to learn how to edit. Um, yeah, so I learned how to edit with my right hand, and I loved it. And then I just did that for like ten years. Okay. Uh, well, I mean, I'm still, I still do it. Um, but it was like this accidental career path in you're an, the. You're an accidental editor. An accidental editor. So, um, and that became something that late, like later, I just valued as like such a important. <clears throat> skill set. Um, and I, um, and I use it now, you know, because now we're sort of, 
I have wonderful editors that I work with, um, but we speak the same language. And I think with the story structure that you, you know, you have an eye for things in the, mm-hmm. in the edit bay. And now it really, really helps my ability to break down a three act structure or figure out, you know, um, where the narrative arc is and things like that, which I think would have taken me a lot longer had I not fallen and broken my arm in Chicago. <laughs> so you that were was- on sort of a similar path to Hal and that you started in editing and then. <clears throat> totally. And that was, um, I mean, I loved his films. And then when I started to, I read Nick Dawson's book and I started yeah. to learn more about him. I really, really connected with him because of things that he would say about, filmmaking and editing and being in the edit bay and being obsessed with every frame. Like I felt like, you know, seen and heard. I was like, Oh, this this is how I feel about it too. I feel, I don't feel like such a freak of nature, you know? Um, And lots of people feel this way, obviously it's why they make really great films, but, um, but yeah, I really, I connected with Hal and he didn't make the landlord, I believe until he was 40 years old. He was up there. Yeah up there well yeah <laughs> so well first you know most filmmakers <laughs> no for sure that's, that's for a sure. long time and that was about the same age that i made you know that that uh, the how movie so i don't know there was a lot of or, or you know kind of shifted got into directing right from editing so so what was what was your first experience with a hal ashby movie um the first film that i saw that i can remember um my friend jason in college uh, you know, we were, but I was uh, watching like Truffaut and Cassavetes. And so I, I thought that I had a very well-rounded, um, you know, in all the new Hollywood, I was like, got it, got it. And my friend Jason's like, yeah, cool, cool. Um, have you ever seen Harold and Maude? And I had no idea what he was talking about. He was a couple years older and he was like, oh, honey, <laughs> like, you're going to skip school today. We're going to watch it. And I swear to God, we watched it. I was, I couldn't believe what I was, I couldn't believe I'd never seen it it had somehow gone past me as soon as it was over i was like start started again we have to read when he's like i knew i knew we'd be here I'll, we'd be here for like eight hours <clears throat> watching the mod on a loop um because that and i you know david o russell i think we left this in our film he even compares it to the catcher in the rye as a sort of like rite of passage mm-hmm. um, thing for people at that age and that it hit me you know right straight through the heart um and then from there I got into I, I learned about him I think I saw the landlord someone had screen was screening the landlord in Oklahoma City or something and I was like oh my god this is incredible um so yeah you know, you know I um uh, I live in Minneapolis and we were <clears throat> I was at the Westgate Theater a lot oh, wow. yeah. where it ran for two and a half years I was an usher, an usher there later but I wasn't there during the Harold Maude years but I saw the movie uh oh. Quite a bit there. Um, and then because I uh, was in a film program and knew someone who knew the um, the film critic for the local paper, uh, when Ruth and Bud came to town for the two-year anniversary, uh, he sort of dragged me along with him. So I had dinner with Bud Court and hung out a little bit with Ruth Gordon and wow. shot a little documentary. I'll send you the link. A oh, little documentary was- on Super 8 of um, their well, my perspective on their experiences, because I was, I don't know, 15 years old or something. And um, although I knew their itinerary, I couldn't drive. And so I would, you know, 
go to the TV station and shoot some stuff there with them. And then they were onto something else. And I had to hop on a bus to keep up with them. That's um, incredible. As yes. a 15 year old. Yes. Oh. I, um, my only regret was uh, on that, that um, when I had dinner with Bud, that I didn't ask better questions. I was <laughs> sort of starstruck. And there's a lot of questions I would ask him now that I've tried to ask him. Um, but, you know, he's not too communicative. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, the movie had a had a great big impact on me. And I put uh, funny little homages to it in the films I was making that would make a certain pocket of the audience laugh when they saw it. And everyone oh, else would go, why is he driving by the cemetery? I don't understand that particular yeah. thing. Oh my goodness. That's so that's incredible that you that you have that footage and I would love to see it. Yeah, it was really it was really really fun and interesting and and uh Ruth Gordon was very much Ruth Gordon, very much Maud, very much spoke oh, her mind yeah. and didn't suffer fools and um oh, anyway, I'll send you the I'll send you the link. So you you'd seen Harold Maud, you'd seen the landlord. At what point did you decide that a, a documentary had to be made? We were um Editing well, okay. I I was pregnant with my first child, and had read or was finishing up Nick Dawson's book on on Ash, you know, on Hal's life, and I thought I just couldn't believe. This was at a time though when, uh, because now we're in this weird documentary boom and bust situation with biopics. Um, and and I'm kind of guilty of like kind of currently being in this landscape with other films too, but this is before the market became oversaturated with a story about everyone's life. And so, you know, at the time, I I just couldn't. I thought, oh my, oh my gosh, there's so much here. I, this guy, he his films should be really celebrated, and he should be more known and revered in the canon of, uh, of Americans, you know, the seventies new Hollywood, because he's so influential. And that's why it was important that we include, you know, like David O. Russell and Adam McKay and uh, Judd, Allison Anders, Judd Abatel, they were, they all had such really poignant. I mean, they could, you know, you draw a direct connection. It's like the film family tree. Um, when you see those wide shots in Harold and Maude, you, th you think of Wes Anderson or the symmetry or, you know, the, the music you think of you know, David O. Russell. I mean, there's so, his influence was, was everywhere. I started to connect the dots and I thought, oh my gosh, we've got to, we've got to make a film here, but I'd never done it. I'd never done anything like that before. I had done, I had directed smaller documentaries. Like I tried to make a film about this band called the Red Crayola. Um, and that was, a hilarious attempt on my part um, to try to, you know, chase them around the, the globe and um, uh, on no money. And it was, you know, that was my only experience outside of editing. So uh, fortunately I had hooked up with um, my producing partners that I still work with now. I had just met them at the time and they hired me to edit some cat food commercials. <laughs> and sure. I was like, sure. yeah, you do. So it was editing, you know, like per, briskies or Purina or I don't know what it was. It was just looking at cats all day and I was about to give birth, but I was working on wor working with Hal's estate to try to lock down the rights. Um, and it kind of, they, they, the rights came through one afternoon and I just pulled them in and I was like, let's do this together. And they'd never made it before. 
before we didn't know what the hell we were doing, but it was so great and so fun. And we approached it like, you know, we're ham- you know, all hands on deck and we were a little family making this thing. So um, that spirit has continued, thank goodness, because of what we put into the Ashby movie. What do you think were his unique qualities as a director? Um, I think, gosh, so much. I just think he really had an eye for, um, he could see stories because all of his film, you said something earlier to the sense that all of his films are not the same and therefore it's hard to, to go, oh, he's this style of filmmaker or that. But the thing that they all have in common is that he has a very um, real and raw approach at looking at humanity, sort of holding the mirror up and showing us who we are with all of our faults and complexities and layers of contradictions and failures. And all. Yeah. Um, he's able to see that and, and find the stories of sort of hu- humanity. And that's the connective tissue for me. Uh, he also had a sick musical taste, like his taste in music. He was always, I mean, he sort of found Cat Stevens before Cat Stevens blew up. He, you know, he, the soundtrack to Shampoo is like, I think that's why it's not in wide release right now. I can't imagine having to license like Hendrix and Janice and the Beach Boys and all, you know. Um, that's true. But I'll also say he had the wisdom to let Paul Simon do the small musical things he did, which are just as powerful or if not more powerful so than powerful. the well songs. Yeah. so much restraint um for for that and it is incredibly yeah incredibly powerful i feel like how um because he was not it is interesting because from all of our research and talking to everyone and girlfriends and collaborators he wasn't a dictatorial um director Mm -hmm. he didn't lay down mandates he was really open to hearing from everybody and making it feel like you everyone had a, you know, it was a democratic scene, you know, and everyone had an equal voice. If you had an idea, speak up. But at the end of the day, he was like, okay, here's the vision. And, and, and once he had that vision, (laughs) I think the, that's where he, he really got into problems, you know, as Norman says, just with the studio system, because that was such a different time. You know, the studio guys thought that they were also the director, that they were also you know, the auteur that could come in. And I just, I can't imagine, I cannot imagine a world where you throw your entire life into making a film and then a studio head comes along and tries to seize it from you and recut it. (laughs) Just, I mean, that would give me cancer, you know, from the stress. I I can't imagine. And certainly Uh, didn't match with, with his personality at all. No, not at all. Cause he was pretty once it's like, you can, that's what I thought it was so fascinating about Hal is that he was uh, open to ideas and, and had a, was this cool hippie sort of sense of um, filmmaking artistry and the special voodoo that gets, you know, ideas in place. But 
but was but had such a hardcore anti-authoritarian mm-hmm. you know his entire being was just like no 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 like the underdogs this is our vision. This is like a Goonies. Like this is our time. Yeah. <laughs> so, I love that about him. And it resonates. I mean, you know, in my microscopic ways of connecting to that now, I, man, I, every time it pops up, I'm like, Oh geez, I feel this little Hal Ashby devil angel on my shoulders. Like yeah. <laughs> pushing back against that. Yes. But it's, um, it's odd because it's not like they didn't know what they were getting. It's not like he, hid that part of his personality you would know that immediately from meeting him but yeah yeah in the instance of harold and maude it was just a weird uh perfect storm of a crazy executive like robert evans saying yes to all these weird things and then the marketing team at gulf and western paramount going we have no idea what to do what do we do you know i had the harold and maude poster hanging for years and it's the most it's the most obvious example of a studio that cannot figure out how to market a movie yeah um but the harold and maude you know two color name thing is it's just so obviously they didn't know what to do (laughs) they just put their name i know i love when judd apatel is talking about that it's like i don't know put their names on (laughs) it's really funny i love that the poster to harold and maude was just the words harold and maude that they didn't even know how to, how to put a picture on it. They're like, can we show Harold and not Maude? Or well, what can we do here? I mean, you can imagine the uh, the marketing panic. So what's the, what was the biggest thing that surprised you as you learned more about Hal? I didn't. I, what surprised me was that side of his temperament was getting, you know, because he did look like this peace, love. I mean, he 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 was such an attractive man and but mm-hmm. you know had this long hair and long beard and so cool and i had a really myopic like view of who i thought what i thought his personality was um super mellow guy and then i <laughs> got in and started reading uh the letters my producer brian was like kind of temp he would read the letters in his voice as a temp track that we would use that to edit, to cut the film. And man, we were rolling, dying, laughing, like falling down. Like, Oh my God, I cannot believe that how would write some of this shit to the head of Paramount mm-hmm. or whoever. It was like, wow, this guy is not at all who I, I mean, these were fiery missives that he would shoot off into space. Um, and, and it wasn't like just getting mad and writing an email. I mean, he had to sit down yeah. at the typewriter, type he had it his out. Little typewriter, and they were very, very long. We, I mean, the the sections that we used in the film were obviously um, heavily n- not redacted. They were just cut. We had we couldn't show yeah. like six pages of vitriol. Yeah. The best part about the vitriol, though, it wasn't just like he's just like vomiting anger. They, it was a very poetic. He had a very poetic way of like weaving together his frustration and. Um, expletives in a way that was just I just loved it and then when we turned the papers over to Ben Foster that's why we we wanted him to narrate be the voice of Hal because he's he always struck me as a an artist or an actor artist that 
totally got gets it in that way too is like not a studio guy i honestly don't think we should kiss their asses singularly or collectively just because it's tough to make deals at this time i would rather have no deal at all than do this that was that was the most fascinating to me but then you know when i start also i knew because of the book i knew a lot of um because nick did such a great job and I knew that I knew his story about, you know, leaving his child, leaving Lee. Um, it's one thing to read about it in a book. And it's a completely different thing to, you know, go meet that person, to meet Lee, to sit with her. And she's since become um, a dear friend to me. I mean, I feel like she she'd never really spoken about that, about her dad, about her yeah. father in that time of her of her life. And. I think revisiting trauma on that level and also kind of working through a lot of those emotions with her was really heavy. And I did not intend, um, I, I, when I set out to make the film, I, I was thinking about the films of Al Ashby and I didn't think it would get as heavy as it did. I'm, I'm glad that she, I'm glad that we went there and that she took us there with her. I feel really, really thankful. I think she got a lot of, out of it, um, but we certainly did. Yeah. It it really did show you just how complicated he was and yeah. the, the reality of his life when you see you yeah. know, the child and she was so eloquent on screen. So great. And then, you know, seeing that, well, his, he had some generational trauma too. Um, and then you put it all together and you're like, oh, okay, well, this is somebody that's really adept at looking deep into the human condition. I wonder why. <laughs> You know, yeah. he's, he's been through a lot. Yeah. He's made a lot of mistakes and he's, he's been through a lot. So of course, of course this checks out and he's just so talented and creative that he can make these films that are this really hot, accurate and fun and funny and uh, sad and tragic and beautiful portrayals of, you know, humanity. Well, let's just, if we can dive into a couple of my favorites, just to see if there's oh, yeah. anything uh, you walked away with, obviously Harold and Maude, uh, holds a special place in my heart um and i've uh just loved reading in nick's book and reading hearing in your film and in listening to commentaries about what hal did to wrestle harold and maude into the movie that it is um and i forget who it was on one of the commentaries who just said uh there were so many long speeches by maude that you just ended up hating her <laughs> and his his editor's ability to go in and just trim it and trim it and trim it. Um, and I, I compare what he did there to what Colin Higgins went on to do when he directed. Mm -hmm. And he simply didn't have, uh, he had the writing skill, obviously, and the directing skill. He didn't have that editor's eye. And I don't think there's a Colin Higgins movie made that couldn't be 20 minutes shorter. And that <laughs> Hal had you know, gone into foul play and edited it down, it would have been a much stronger comedy. Uh, nine yeah. to five would have been 20 minutes shorter, mm -hmm. probably a little stronger. Um, yeah. Anyway, and and you you don't recognize that it's all hidden. It's all, it's the edit, it's, you don't know what he threw away. Oh, and, yeah. And that's the beauty of that movie of Harold and Maude is that he, within this larger piece, he found that movie and found the right way to express it so what did you learn about that movie that might have surprised you I, everything surprised me about it um 
you know, we never, we were never able to get Bud Court. <laughs> he's yeah. so, he's, you know, he's Bud Court. He's so, he's, he's so special and he's so elusive. Yeah. And yep. we thought we, we thought we were going to get him a couple times and then it didn't, it was just a real difficult thing, but. Um, but you have but, him from the memorial service and that's a great. Oh thing. yeah. And Bud, it's, anytime he's on camera, he's like bewitching. He's a, mm-hmm. he's incredible. My father was dying when I met him. I was an emotional minefield, but I wanted the part. And he took a chance on me, and in so doing became not only a director, but uh, a father, a mother, a driving instructor, and a psychiatric nurse. Again, with the letters, I just didn't realize that Bud and um, Bud and Hal were so close. I mean, obviously they were close, mm-hmm. but they were very tight. They had um, a real father-son sort of bond. Um, and I, I think I was, I didn't, I didn't realize that also Charles Mulhill, um, the producer, you know, him talking about how, how difficult it was to make the film was really interesting. And I didn't know that, that Charles ended up marrying one of the women that, that, um, is on the dating, (laughs) the dating service that Harold's mom tries to set up. That was interesting too. It's hard for me to all, to tell you the truth. We did so much research on all the films. Like there's little bits and pieces of all of them, like just completely jumping away from Harold and Maude just because my brain is disorganized. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, Diane Schroeder that, that was, um, you know, with Hal for a number of years and she's in the film, she was sort of a researcher archivist. She wore many hats. And I did, I did not realize that for on being there, um, she wanted to recreate, she really needed to nail down what was on the television. Mm-hmm. Um, for So what, because Chauncey Gardner learned everything from TV. So it was really important what was on it, you know, and he's flipping, it's not random, you know, right. what, what they're flipping. So she like her and Howell would take, would just put VHS tapes in, or I guess it would have been beta at the time, whatever the fidelity was, but they would record hundreds of hours of TV and watch it down. And then she would, she got all these TV guides from, from that time, you know, from that year was 80, 81, but it was like three year span she had all the TV guys, she had everything figured out and was highlighting like he would have watched this and they would have flipped it to this. And it was like creating the character of, um, you know, of Chauncey Gardner with Hal and then with Peter, then Peter Sellers got involved and he had certain thoughts about it too. And I was just so blown away by the fact that that much care and effort and painstaking detail would go into it, but it comes, I mean, you, you see it on screen. It's the yeah. film's a masterpiece because of those things. But yeah, I mean, just like, just like the deafness of editing of leaving things out is what mm-hmm. makes it good. I mean, that, that is such a, such a really like de- hyper detailed behind the scenes thing to know that. And I, I found was when we were going through his storage space, I remember asking Diane, like, why is there like, there's like boxes and boxes and boxes of TV. And she's like, oh yeah, that's 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 Chauncey Gardner's. I was like, oh my god, I cannot believe you guys saved this. It's oh. really and funny. You know, it's interesting because um, it's it's like the difference between a practical effect and a CGI effect. Now yeah. they would have done all that in post. Now they I know. Just dropped them in, and they had to get that all figured out. You know, 
Totally. By the time they were shooting, that's that's a lot of pre-production. Oh, an immense amount of pre-production. I'm pretty sure that Hal did cut, like, you know, because he could cut and would, like, he set up an edit bay in his bedroom, you know, which is, like, (laughs) definition of insanity. I had that going on at one point in my life, and it was not good. It's not a good thing to roll over, and it's, like, right there, like, right next to your pillow staring at you. You need some distance. You know, when I saw being there um, for the first time, for some reason I was in Los Angeles when I saw it. And of course loved it. I mean, obviously it's been there. Yeah. And then came back to Minneapolis and someone had seen it and said, don't you love the outtakes? And I said, what outtakes? Yeah. They said over the end credits, all those yeah. outtakes of Peter Sellers. And I said, there were no outtakes. Right. And in the so version in LA, yeah. they didn't do that. Now get this honky. <laughs> <laughs> I was sorry, carry on. <laughs> what was the message, Mr. Gardner? Now get this honky. You go tell Raphael that I ain't taking no jive. <laughs> <laughs> so we just ran out of time uh, to put this in the movie, but um, we found all these Western Union telegraphs that Peter Sellers wrote to Hal, just pissed, just livid, furious about that. And it was like, and the whole thing just said, you broke the spell, you broke the spell, God damn it, you broke the spell. He was so pissed that they included that, um, mm-hmm. those outtakes. And I, I agree with them. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not a real normal Hal move have done that no it's honestly the first time that i'd ever seen blooper outtakes in in a film like that like that's so such an interesting 80s that defines the 80s that kind of style of stuff um shenanigans and whatnot but um like yeah no you want him to walk out on the water dip his umbrella in and think about that for the rest of your life exactly Exactly. you don't yeah i think what because i saw it in la i think they left it off just kind of for academy purposes so that yeah. it would help with the awards. Um, but then years later to look at the DVD and see the alternate ending. I know. And go, well, that's not, that's yeah. a terrible ending. What a shame. What a shame. I'm glad you guys figured that out. And then on yeah. the, apparently, what, what was it, the third take? Somebody said he should put his umbrella down. <laughs> yeah. go, yes. That's, that's so smart. It's so smart. All right. Um, shampoo is another uh, favorite. Um, and I'm curious oh, yeah. what you learned about that because you had three very strong personalities making that movie with Robert Town on one side and Warren Beatty on the other and Hal yeah. in the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, it's amazing that it came out as well as it did. Sure, sure is, huh? That somehow Hal wrangled yeah. into to what he did. What did you <clears throat> learn there that sort of surprised you? Well, that that aspect is what we wanted to really investigate was because Hal seemed like such a, you know, he had a pretty singular vision and a lot of this, like, how does it, how does a director at that stage of the game too, because he was really, I mean, he was becoming a very important filmmaker. So then how do you balance the styles of Robert Town and Warren Beatty? These guys are colossal figures in Hollywood with like, you know, it's like these alpha dogs. Um, I wish that we could have sat with Warren. Not it was not for not for lack of trying. Yeah. Um, 
which I think a lot of these guys that we couldn't get, it's like, yeah, it's what makes them so cool. You know, yeah, Bruce yeah. Dern, you know, I was trying to chase down Bruce Dern at the Chase Bank in Eagle Rock one day. And I was just like, you know, what? I need to let it go. But um, shampoo, I, you know, that's everything that we sort of learned. We put in the film because it was, you know, Robert Town was the only one we could talk to. And then sort of listening to the, you know, audio commentary that Hal had from those AFI seminars. Mm -hmm. It just seemed like an incredible, and Caleb, Caleb Deschanel spoke pretty eloquently about what, you know, it'd be like watching a ping pong match going back and forth between Robert and Warren about what the direction should be. And then the director is sitting in a chair, probably smoking a joint, like waiting for them to finish. So you can just get up and be like, yeah, yeah, no, we'll just walk in the door and walk out and we'll, We'll finish the take, but <clears throat> seems like they might have needed um, a sort of a mediator type presence mm -hmm. to guide the ship, like have a soft hand with it. You know, you can't have three alphas in the room at the same time, like absolutely nothing would get done. You need a neutralizing force. And it seems like that's what how it was. And you just have really great taste, you know? Yeah. Yeah. My favorite, like David O. Russell, my, my favorite, um, element of that movie besides julie christie's backless dress would be just jack warden jack anytime jack warden comes on screen i'm like just want to hang with him for another yeah. half hour i could just watch that man piddle around and be funny and you know i remember reading an interview with richard dreyfus after uh duty kravis came out in which he was blasting the director saying that they ruined jack warden's performance in post-production and jack warden is amazing and duty Kravitz. Yeah. I don't I don't know what they he thinks they did uh to it because he's just fantastic and I'd like to know he, what else he must did. have just been astronomically amazing and funny yeah. and which is what I imagine he's was like you know yeah my I, I took away two things from shampoo uh one was uh having seen Harold Maud as often as I did recognizing that the the sound effect of the policeman's motorcycle is the same one as George's motorcycle as he's going up the <laughs> Hollywood Hills. It's the exact same. Uh, same they use, they use the same ones. I didn't know same you guys, guys. reuse yeah. those things. But the the last shot as he's looking down on his well, um, Julie Christie's house yeah. and the use of Paul Simon's music there, yeah. it is one of the saddest things I've ever seen. So and it's sad. just a it's just a guy standing on a uh, empty lot looking down into the houses below, but it's, uh, I, I don't know how he, with the guys he was dealing with, I don't know how he made that a Hal Ashby movie, but he did. He did. And it, well, it seems like his moments like that. Um, yeah. There's so much melancholy loaded into that moment um, yeah. because he's so, he's such a, George is such an interesting character. Now I'm realizing that you and I have just blown, we've just spoiler alerted, both the ending shots of being there and this. So, anybody listening to this who hasn't seen those movies yeah. deserves to be spoiled. You know, yeah, I could get on the get on the boat, but um, yeah, that that always got me. I think it's all of those really like foggy, misty Mulholland Drive. George on his motorcycle. Anytime mm -hmm. he's alone, because he crams his life so full of women to try to, you know. Put, plug the hole or the void or whatever, whatever he's got going on that's missing in his life. And he's just trying to shove it full of women. So when he's alone and he has nothing and no one, you're like, Oh my God, this is the saddest thing I've ever seen. It really seen. is. I, yeah. I don't re Maybe you can 
fill me in on this. I remember reading somewhere that um, the scene, his last scene with Goldie Hawn, they went back and they reshot it because somebody said he's standing, he should be sitting. Um, and I'm always interested in in directors who hear that and are willing to go back and do it. The other example is uh, um, Donald Sutherland in Ordinary People in his last scene, or Tyler Moore saying, uh, I did it wrong. I, I should be done crying. I was crying when we shot it. I should have been done crying. And they went back and reshot wow. his portion of it where oh, he wow. was no longer crying because the director went, you're right. Um, and oh. the simple notion of Warren Beatty should be sitting down <laughs> and she should be standing over him. Uh-huh, she's got the power. Obviously, there were others, weren't there? Obviously. How many? What do you want to know for? Because I want to know. What difference all. does it make? Because I don't want girls looking at me and knowing and me not knowing. Please don't do this. No, it'll help me, really. Please? It'll help me if you tell me. How? Because I'll know that you've lied to me all along. And I'll know that you're incapable of love. And that'll help me. I'm not sure a lot of directors would have said, oh, no, we don't need to go back and do that. We're, we're over schedule and we got other stuff to do, but. Oh yeah. I don't think Hal cared at all about the schedule uh, at all. And everything that I read or, you know, even Jeff Bridges talked about like them being over budget and past day. And he's like, you know, all right, let's figure out a creative solution. Just to, It's going to take as long as it's going to take. Like you never seem to really get riled mm-hmm. on set. Um or have those sort of parameters be the hold all the power and guide the filmmaking. He was in complete control of that. Um, yeah, I hadn't heard that, but that I mean, I can I believe it. That makes sense. It's such a yeah. great scene, too. Gosh, it is. Yes, it, it is. And and his having that sort of um, attitude about things that just spreads to the whole set. That it spreads it everywhere throughout, and, and makes it easier for everybody to work. It does. Yeah. All right, let's do one last one. Um, coming home uh, is interesting for me because I had friends who ran a movie theater here in town mm-hmm. um, and it was just a couple running it and I would come by from time to time. If they were busy, I'd go up and, and run the projector for them. They had one of those flat big plate yeah. systems. So you only had to turn the projector on. It wasn't that yeah. big a deal, but you know, I was young and it's like, okay, now I'm going to turn the house lights down and now we're going to hit the <laughs> button. And so I got to see you know, the first five minutes of coming home a lot. Okay. Um, uh, probably more than I saw the rest of the movie. Was there anything you learned about the making of that film that surprised you? Yeah, I didn't realize how um, how hard it was to get that film made. Was like everything that happened before, same with being there with Jersey Kaczynski, but... Mm-hmm. Um, there was another right, you know, Jane, Jane Fonda is the one that's really responsible for, for coming home, even yeah. existing. And um, there was another uh, woman, I can't remember, I'm totally blanking on her name right now, but she, she wrote, you know, the sort of original incarnation coming home uh, it was, it was different, but it was, you know, the, the was bones Nancy, were there. Nancy Dow. Nancy, Nancy Dow. Is it right? Yes. Thank you. I shouldn't know. I this. don't know. I don't know why I pulled that in. I, I saw it. the opening credits a lot, I guess. Yeah, Nancy did totally. Um, so yeah, Nancy Dad had a book. Jane thought it's an incredible story. Have not heard um had heard it told like this. Um and really fought hard. It was you know, by the time it got to Hal, it was it was different. There was a number of rewrites, obviously. Um it had to be cut down significantly. 
Um, so I thought I said that was really interesting because I, I never, which is just naive on my part. I never think that it's never my go-to to think that one of the actors is the one responsible for mm-hmm. usually, you know, it comes to you in a different way. And especially if he was working with Robert town and the like uh, on other films, but um, I thought that was, that was really cool and really interesting in that, you know, what Jane spoke about it being sort of this, you know, showing, showing what our veterans were going through mm-hmm. um, was, wasn't, was new um, because you had like the deer hunter would have been the comparable and that's a wildly different take on what coming home from the Vietnam war was like. Um, but also, you know, the, the, the woman's journey in that film um, and the sexuality of, of, of all of that um, was just like, wow, you know, and only Jane Fonda can speak about it eloquently as Jane Fonda does. <laughs> I had spent about three years talking to, to members of the military, all branches of the service. I really wanted to make a movie that, that was about the Vietnam War from the point of view of veterans. One day I was asked to speak at a rally at Claremont College. The other speaker was a a Vietnam veteran named Ron Kovic. And he said to the students, I may have lost my body, but I've gained my mind. And I thought right then, I can make a movie based on that concept. It was interesting, John, when we were sitting with John Voight and talking to him that he, he was really method in the way that he didn't get out of his chair. I mean, for days on end, like, you know, going to crafty in the chair, um, learning, learning how to do go up, up, you know, ramps and play basketball and all the things that you see was because he, he wouldn't get out of the chair, which was, was wonderful. Um, I really enjoyed talking with uh, Jeff Wexler and Haskell. I mean, that, the interview that we did with Haskell, I'm so thankful for because, you know, ha- Haskell passed away not that long after we yeah. filmed. I figure it was pretty close to the, to the end on that. It was one of his last interviews. Um, so it was really special. And, to, and you know, he came to set. And Haskell is like a, go- a film god to, to me and my team. Um, for me, for, I lived in Chicago, so medium cool was like, you know, uh, um one of the coolest things ever. So, um, yeah, I mean, meeting him and talking with him about all that was so, was so interesting. I, I loved hearing about how, you know, just the opening, you can just tell it's Haskell Wexler, you you know, it's a Hal Ashby film, but the way it starts and, and having seen medium cool and going into, um, that opening scene where the, all the vets are just sort of, and, and a lot of those guys are, they're non-professional actors. They were, um, actual vets that had come home and those were their true real stories. I mean, it was very like, you know, now we would say it's a hybrid documentary unscripted scripted, but it was like a really early use of that kind of style. And that's what made it feel so real. Um, and then you start in with the Rolling Stones. It's just such a, wow, such a powerful film. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm always curious about the, that sort of thing where he has a lot of footage and he's creating the movie out of it. And and what would Hal Ashby be like today? How different would his life be if he 
had everything at his fingertips and not hanging on a pin over in a bin and he had to remember where everything was um i don't i don't know if that would have been any made any difference at all i don't know he, i mean like griff was saying uh he was their house his last house or their house in malibu colony was just you know like retrofitted with editing gear and it was just you know right before he died it was just he was he was like an early pioneer of digital editing like mm -hmm. he'd started to to work out you know what kinds of systems like he was building his giant rigs and was convincing everyone like you know digital is the way to go which is so cool and so mind-blowing but i think um it w it was born out of a place of of independent of independent film of democratizing the access and taking the power away from the studios and knowing that you could do this cheaply in your home yep. you know it like it was such a it's, it was so actually tragic to to learn that that like what could, what could he have done because his output was just you know, I mean, he put out so much, so many some great movies. So like, what could he have done if the infrastructure was even more accessible and sped up technologically? Yeah. Imagine a, an eight part streaming series directed by Hal Ashby. What would that uh, I just, that yeah, it'd be incredible. He would have made, well, I know that he was wanting to make, he had so many films that, um, you know, that, and we found and we found script after script. But one of them that I was so like, damn, that would have been cool was the Hawkline Monster, which is a Richard Brodigan mm -hmm. science fiction Western novel. It's so trippy and so cool. Um, and I feel like at every couple of years I hear about some directors like we got the rights. We're going to make it. I'm like, when are they going to make it? It's been so long. Good luck on that. How and and, me and imagine what his the version of Tootsie would have been. Oh, I know. Yeah. No joke, huh? Yeah. It's those did were... you see those little bits of it and go, oh wow. I know, okay. I know. Would have been it would have been a different film. I, I read a quote somewhere that uh one of the producers, or maybe it was Sidney Pollock, who said mm -hmm. they took, you know, they took the script to Elaine May. Oh. And she said, uh yeah, it just needs and then she listed like five things. <laughs> he needs a roommate that he can talk to, uh the girl at the TV on the TV show, she needs a father so he can become involved with her. There also has to be a coworker who uh, is interested in him as a woman. The director needs to be an ass and he should probably be dating the woman. It looks like five different things. Yeah. She said the script is fine, but you need these five things. It's like, well, what did you have? You just listened <laughs> yeah, to the whole movie. Right. Well, we're talking about Elaine May. She's not someone that needs, she needs a film. She does. And, Why are you not doing that? Very I listen, I'm telling you, I've tried, this is another one that I've tried for years. Uh, you know, real shocker. It's hard to get um, a film about a female filmmaker funded. Uh, it's a, it's a hard sell. Um, well, but, plus the fact uh, that she probably wouldn't want to do it. So she's <laughs> so cool. Maybe, maybe, maybe but she, you know, she, she has, uh, my, my approach has always been that she, she's, she has so much to teach us still. Yes, um, so I would love to get her hot takes on all those films. Um, A New Leaf. I mean, the stories behind that thing getting I'd made and cut I'd down. Like see, and see the whole version of that. Exactly. Yeah. I, and I want to hear it from her. So yes. um, yeah, that's high up on my list of like things I really, really want to make um, soon with Elaine. Yes. Let's hurry. Let's hurry and do that. You didn't get to talk to Bud. Was there anyone else you really wanted to get to who 
Um, I mean, you mentioned Warren didn't want to talk. Maybe, Anybody else? Yeah. I mean, I would have loved um, Julie Christie or, uh, you know, more women would have been great. But yeah, no, it was, it was really Warren and Bud. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, Bruce Dern was so, so great and so funny. And I, I'd seen him a number of times. I saw he was at a screening of, I don't know, one of his movies. He talked for like an hour and a half before they even screened the film. And his, he was whip, you know, he's whip smart. His memories, you know, I was so, I was so upset <laughs> that we couldn't work it out because I knew that he would be. Yeah incredible in coming home you know and we and got just his knowledge of movie industry having been in it oh my gosh yeah, I mean, he was i mean working a, with betty davis and then yeah the he's a national travel treasure exactly i was like staring at a poster i have framed of alfred hitchcock's family plot in my kitchen <laughs> bruce stern that's, was in that with karen you remember that weird that's the, that's the movie that is going to make him a star is what hitchcock said oh my um, god it still has one of the greatest closing shots of all time which I no, we can't just we can't spoil that i'm going to spoil it <laughs> okay um, go ahead <laughs> because i i think i read that barbara harris improvised the wink Probably. And that's another person you should make a documentary about. Is oh, my gosh. The amazing Barbara Harris. Barbara Harris is something. Do you remember? What was the film that she was in with um, Dustin Hoffman? And Doc, <clears throat> Dr. Hook scored it. It's a really long title. It's like, why, who is Harry Kellerman? Harry Kellerman? Oh, yeah. Why is he yeah. saying these terrible things about why me? Why is he saying these terrible things about me? That is such a phenomenal Barbara Harris performance. I mean, yeah, Dustin Hoffman is incredible. He's always great. But Barbara Harris really shines. And I get us, I'm like, that's who she was. <laughs> that's yeah. really who she was. Yeah. I think it, she was difficult. Well, I don't know. Difficult. She had issues. She had stuff she was she had, dealing with. She had issues and how def dealt with those um, on secondhand hearts, too. Yeah. So, uh, from a production <laughs> standpoint, I'm, I, people are interested in hearing uh, what your indigo process was like, uh, how that started, any tips you'd have for someone who wants to fund their film. Yeah, Indiegogo. Indiegogo. Yeah, and, um, oh boy. Well, um, that was a different time because I really don't know how films are funded at the moment. Um, this came pal came out five years ago, but it took us like six years to make. So during in that time, you could um, you know, fund you could at least raise enough capital uh to get through production. Mm -hmm. And um, and then if you were like, you know, an editor, like me, um, my producer is an editor, like we, we all kind of shared the role. Um, so we, we essentially, you know, the Indiegogo campaign, and thank you for donating, <laughs> because that enabled it so that we could even make the movie because everything past that point was, you know, no, nobody ever got paid at all. But at least that would, you know, we could we could buy film stock and, and, you know, pay, pay the, ca the camera operators and, and our DPs and stuff. Um, so that was hugely important. And at, at the time, I remember thinking like, Oh no, how are we ever going to get anybody to, cause you had to make these, I don't know if this is still the case, but you had to make these like commercials for your project or mm -hmm. like a trailer yeah. Yeah. to get people's attention. And you had to, you know, be like all over Facebook and crap like that. So I was like, oh no, how am I going to make a thing that shows that how Ashby is important to people that are, that want to give money and um, our archivist somehow knew John C. Riley, 
and mentioned it to him and was like, we, we just need a celebrity to come in for like, you know, half a day or one hour. And he was like, I'll come in down and do that. And he can't, I couldn't believe it. I mean, the generosity of this man to just, he didn't know us at all, but he knew, but what he did know and love is the films of Hal Ashby and wanted to give back, you know, and pay it forward. So he came down and because of him, we were able to be like, oh my gosh, this is great. Now we have a really funny, awesome little commercial trailer. I have since, I have no idea where that thing even is. I'd love to see it. Cause I'm like, I had to do it with him, which was terrifying because I'm, I am not a front of camera person. And I'm just like, oh, well, I don't know what to say. And he had to stop me so many times and be like, you're going to be all right. All you have to do is ask for money. I'll do the rest of the talking. I'm like, oh my God, this is awful. Yeah. I, I remember seeing it. I mean, that's oh, yeah. it's since been stripped from Indiegogo, which probably means that we used a song that we weren't able to license. Uh, I'm guessing because yeah. that that was back in the early days of those crowdfunding where you could just take images or songs and like I'm sure I used like the music of Cat Stevens right. and then like loaded it up with a bunch of photos that we never paid for. So well, that, that's, that brings up a question of how did you get all the rights to the stuff you got? For the finished movie was the, that a huge part of your budget do um no we although my producers and my archivists would probably be like yeah it the most expensive the most expensive thing always to this day is music music is gonna gut you um outside of that thank goodness there's um this little thing called fair use now which wasn't the case in documentary filmmaking for a very long time but now you can fair use um, certain elements of, you know, photographs or photographs are harder, but, um, you know, news clips, video clips, mm -hmm. anything, uh, anything that sort of supports, you know, your, your case that you're making, your thesis uh, that you're, that you're making about your subject and sort of supports your storyline um, falls under the category of fair use. So I think what our, what our money did pay for is the, the, the fair use attorneys that, that really go over your prod, they go over your rough cut and they are your fine cut because we couldn't, we couldn't afford to pay for multiple lawyers to look at them multiple times. So you give them a fine cut, you, you know, hold your breath and hope that they say, Oh, you know, you only have to take out a couple things. And then you're like, Oh, thank God. Okay. And then you change it. And we, I believe we, we, cause we never had any money um, that we like submitted to Sundance, got in on a wing and a prayer and then had like, you know, two weeks to turn the film around and get it finished editing and all this stuff. And I remember we were like, you know, pulling all these all nighters, trying to change the notes that the legal said that X, Y, and Z was not fair use and trying to swap out music with our composer. It was like wild. It was a wild run. It's not always the way it's, you know, six years to get there. Yeah, that you, have, sure. you have two weeks to finish it. That's, that's how it shook out for us. It was like really, really pretty funny. Because you're going at a leisurely play, a leisurely pace until you're not, and then it's like, all right, it, it's real now. I thought for years I was like, I think my friends and casual acquaintances think that I've lost my mind because, like, it was a real fear of mine. Because every year I'd see people that I would see occasionally, and they're like, "Hey, how's it going? What are you working on?" I'm like, oh, "I'm just working on this Ashby movie," and they were like, year after year, like, "Damn, Groundhog Day." She's like lost yeah. it. Like yeah. we need to reel her in. We need to throw our lifeline. Like, no, really, I really, really am. Um, 
So it was pretty funny. We were, we did it. <laughs> People have no idea how long these things take. <laughs> yes, if it's unfunded. But, you know, then we got lucky after that because, you know, we nearly killed ourselves on Hal. Uh, then we got, then we kind of fell into the era of like stream streaming deals and streamers. And people were like, oh, we want to make biopics and we want to give you money to make a biopic. And that was such a, <laughs> that was truly our first rodeo. We were like, oh my gosh, what? This is incredible. We can get paid for this. Um, so, and now that's, that's falling away yeah, <laughs> yeah. because the streaming industry is, you know, collapsing in on itself as it should, because there's no curation anymore. And it's right. like, you know, let's, let's return to form a little bit here, guys. So we're just riding the wave. I say it's like, we're riding, we're trying to learn how to ride a mechanical bull, this industry, you know, <laughs> and I love it. Cowboy, so <laughs> I'm from Oklahoma, so I'm up for the ride. All right, let me ask you one last question. I'll let you go then. So sure. as a filmmaker, what did you learn doing a deep dive uh, into the the work of this director and editor? And you are a director and editor. So that's sort oh of a scary thing to do anyway, to, to be the person who's going to edit Hal Ashby. What did you learn yeah. in the process that you can still take away today? Well, listen, we, we joke about it all the time. Um, my producer, Brian Morrow, and I are constantly going, oh, that's, it's like, what What would Hal do um, just to get that bracelet on our arm? Mm -hmm. Everything that he, everything that he stood for as a filmmaker, you know, the film will tell you what to do. Get in there, be obsessed, be the film. <laughs> like all of those things, that's what, that's what car carries me. I've never thought like I said, I, I felt like, oh my gosh, I, I get this man because I feel the same way. So when when we like took like a you know a real bath in Hal Ashby's words for years, that sort of that shapes the rest of your life as a filmmaker. You're not like a casual filmmaker after going through like the Ashby car wash, you know, <laughs> like mm -hmm. you that stuff sticks. But I'm just I'm proud I'm proud that that we pulled it off. I'm proud that we were able to make the movie. Somebody would have done it because Hal is too great and too good. And he does has deserved it for so long. And the only thing that we've ever wanted was that we wanted people to go back and watch his films or to watch them for the first time that have never seen him. And then to, to take that, his creative spirit forward, you know, like to get, it, to be in love with the thing that you make is your life force. Um, so uh, otherwise, like, what is it all for? You know? So yeah, that's what I, that's what I got from him. Thanks to Amy Scott for making Hal and for taking the time to chat with me about the life and work of one of our favorite directors. Did you enjoy this interview? You can find lots more just like it on the Fast Cheap Movie Thoughts blog check out the link in the show notes. Plus, more interviews can be found in my books, Fast, Cheap, and Under Control, Lessons Learned from the Greatest Low-Budget Movies of All Time, and its companion book of interviews with screenwriters, Fast, Cheap, and Written That Way. Both books can be found on Amazon. And while you're there, check out my mystery series of novels about magician Eli Marks and the scrapes he gets into. The entire series, starting with The Ambitious Card, can be found on Amazon in paperback, hardcover, ebook, and audiobook formats. And if you haven't done it already, 
check out the podcast companion to the books behind the page, The Eli Marks Podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. Well, that's it for episode 115 of the Occasional Film Podcast, which was produced at Grass Lake Studios. Original music composed and performed by Andy Morantz. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you occasionally.